please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. As you turn there, I just extend an invitation to you to come back this evening to either to uh, our location at the farmhouse or Bethany Baptist Church or Living Hope for our Sunday night electives at the farmhouse this evening. I'll be talking about the Reformation and its application to our lives and, and how that impacts us. The theology of the Reformation continues to impact us. I'm excited about the opportunity for, the, for us to to continue to worship God this evening. So I encourage you to, to make use, uh, utilize those electives this morning and participate, or this evening and participate in those. Well, please stand with me at this time, and we'll read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 together. Luke writes, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I I will let down the nets and When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. We'd be encouraged by God's word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray as we continue to worship God in spirit and in truth. Father, you know all things. You know the condition of our hearts this morning. You know the things that are going on in our lives. I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to speak through your word this morning. You would cause our our hearts to be settled before you and that you would convict us of areas where we need to change, encourage us in areas where you are at work already in our lives and Give us your grace to be obedient. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. In 1966, the Beach Boys released an album entitled Pet Sounds. And the eighth track on the album Pet Sounds was entitled God Only Knows. And part of the song goes like this. It says, if you should ever leave me, though life would go on, believe me. The world could show nothing to me, so what good would living do me? God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows what I'd be without you. Now, I don't want to overanalyze a Beach Boys song this morning, but it's kind of an interesting blend of a deep theological truth with kind of some sentimental, sappy lyrics thrown in there. 
You see, it's true that God only knows certain things. That is a powerful theological statement. God only knows. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. And yet, I think that song is a good illustration of how that idea, God only knows, that expression, God only knows, has been used so casually, so cavalierly in our culture that it has become a cliche. But it is true that God only knows some things. But we use that phrase so casually that it's lost its significance. What it means in our culture today is kind of like, I don't know. Where are my car keys? God only knows. Who ate that last cookie? God only knows. I don't know. But again, let me suggest to you that that is a theological statement. And what I want to do this morning as we look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is restore some of the, the oomph to that theological statement. And I want us to take that great theological truth that God only knows certain things and think through how that truth impacts us on a practical level. For example, a young mother is told that she has terminal cancer. She's told that she has, at best, three months left to live. And this mother looks at her five-year-old, her three-year-old, and her one-year-old and contemplates their lives without her. And then she comes to God's word and she reads 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, says, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And she looks at her children and she looks at God's word and she looks at her children and she says, I don't know, God. I know you know all things. And I'm willing to concede that at this moment in my life, I shouldn't be bitter toward you. I shouldn't hate you. But I'm looking at my children. I know what takes place in the lives of children who don't have their mother, especially me who loves them so dearly. No one else in their lives is ever going to love them the way that I love them. I don't know if I can thank you for that. What that mother needs at that moment of her life is to take this abstract idea that God knows all things and think through how it affects her life right at that moment practically. It need not be so dire an example either, right? Let's say you're a a sixth grade student at school and uh, you have a, a bestest friend in the world, right? And your bestest friend in the world is told lies about you by your worstest enemy, okay? And now your bestest friend is bestest friends with your worstest enemy and because of the terriblest lies that have been told about you. You're upset. You come to Luke chapter 6 as a sixth grader, and you read in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And you look at your worstest enemy playing with your bestest friend, hanging out with them, and you think, okay, God, I'm willing to acknowledge that I shouldn't murder, but love? 
God, I think my worstest enemy needs some divine justice. And Lord, use me, use me if you shall, to execute your divine justice on this person. But you come to God's word, it says love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. You look at the situation, you look at God's word, you look at the situation, and you say, God, I'm not sure, although I acknowledge that you know all things, this circumstance seems a little bit different. And maybe in this circumstance, what you've told me to do isn't ideal. Let's think this over. What we need is to understand that this theological truth, that God only knows certain things, has implications, practical implications in our daily lives. What I want to do this morning is restore some of that theological oomph to our daily lives that God only knows certain things. What I hope is that we take this truth that God knows all things and use it to help us follow Christ in all things. The fact that God knows all things should cause us to follow Christ in all things. That's where I want us to get as we look at this story together this morning in Luke chapter 5. What we're going to do is I'm going to just talk about the story and then we're going to think through three applications that will help us take the truth that God knows all things and help us follow him in all things. Let's look at the story. He says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, verse 1, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. And so what's happening is this, that Jesus comes on a cool morning, probably cool, probably almost cold, about 7 o'clock in the morning. We know this because it's the time of year that the fishermen would be at this section of the Sea of Galilee. This would be about the time that they're there. And so most likely, it's about 7 o'clock in the morning, very cool morning. There are some fishermen that have been out in the Sea of Galilee, and they've been out in the Sea of Galilee all night long. They have been, they're wet, they've been fishing, and they have been very unsuccessful. And now in the early hours of the morning, they've returned to shore. They've placed their boats on the shore, and they've taken out their nets. The nets that they would have most likely been using are called trammel nets. They're these nets that are made out of, of linen, linen cloth, about 100 feet long. They're generally tied into sections of five, so maybe 500 feet worth of netting in each of the boats, usually about four men per boat. And so they, they take this netting out of the boat, and they take it onto the shore, and they begin to wash it. These linen nets would rot if they weren't cleaned. And so after a very unsuccessful night of fishing, these men begin to wash their nets. Jesus is there as well. He comes, and he's standing there on the shore of the lake, and he's preparing to teach. But what happens is the crowds are wanting to hear the word of God. And they're so excited about hearing the word of God that they're, they're pressing in on him. We don't really have that problem here at Five Points. We have a very wide uh, sanctuary, and there's a spray zone. And you guys seem to, for some reason, uh, spread out toward the exits. I'm not sure why. Uh, but here, in this circumstance, they're so excited about hearing the word, they're pressing in on Jesus. And Jesus realizes that there's no place for him to sit down and teach. If he sits down and, and, and teaches, then no one's going to be able to hear him. And he looks over, and he sees uh, two boats. Now, these boats would have been maybe from here to the podium, Oh, about, about to here, 15, 18 feet long. 
And these, these boats that Simon Peter and his companions own, Jesus looks at, and he, he gets into one, and he looks at Simon Peter and he says, put me out a little ways. Remember from Luke chapter 4, Jesus and Simon Peter already had a relationship with one another. Remember he healed Simon Peter's mother in chapter 4. Simon Peter says, okay. Jesus gets in the boat. Simon Peter pushes out a little bit of ways. Jesus sits down, and he begins to teach the people God's word. You see the scene? A little ways from the shore, people pressing in, fishermen cleaning their nets, Simon Peter in the boat with Jesus, listening to Jesus teach about God's kingdom, about repentance, about the necessity of repentance to enter God's kingdom, about who God is, explaining the scriptures. It must have been an amazing thing to be able to participate in. Suddenly in the story, the attention shifts. You see it in verse 4. It's kind of been about Jesus and this big scene in the crowds. And now it becomes about Jesus and Peter. Peter's sitting there listening to Jesus teach, and suddenly Jesus' instructions go from kind of broad application to specific. Look at verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon Peter has been listening to Jesus teach, saying good things, talking to the audience at large. Now, Jesus' instructions become particular and specific to him. And look at how Peter responds. Very interesting. It would have been interesting to know exactly the tone of voice he says this in, but here's the general gist of what he says, or what he says. Simon answers, verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now here's what I think we see in Peter's response. First, we see that there is an attempt on Peter's part to give Jesus some more knowledge about the circumstances. Jesus, I'm, I'm going to do it, but you might want to know this. It's kind of like my children. I've told my children, when I give you an instruction, you need to obey it. Now, if there's some additional information that you think I need to have when I give you an instruction, begin to obey and then let me know it. Uh, go clean your room. Dad, mom told me I need, whatever, okay, go do that. <laughs> Peter, seems to have an attitude where he's willing to obey God, but obey Jesus. But as he does so, he's like, there might be some more information that you need about this circumstance. And here's what Peter's point is. Jesus, I recognize your authority as a teacher, but this fishing thing is kind of my realm. I'm a fisherman. James, John, the Zebedee boys, me, we got this business going on. And let me tell you, times is tough. We're in a little bit of a recession after last night. We spent all night in the cold water and caught nothing. It hasn't been going well. We've taken these nets. We're in the process of cleaning them, and then we're going to go home and sleep because we're tired. 
Now, also know this about the type of netting that they were using. These linen nets were useful at night because it was dark. During the daytime, they were not very effective because the fish see net and swim away. Peter says, okay, we, caught, we went all night and caught nothing. But to his credit, Peter says this, but at your word, at your word, I will let down the nets. And apparently Jesus nods his head and says, okay. Now, you don't see this in the English translation, but there in verse 4, it's a plural instruction. Jesus said, I want you guys, y'all, to go get y'all's nets and let y'all let them down. Peter and apparently the hired men get in his boat and with Jesus, and they go out to the deep water. And they let down the nets. And you can just imagine, Peter, as they begin to draw up the nets, feeling their weight. Look at the text, and you kind of see the, the rising action here. It says they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were, be great, were breaking. The, the hired guys, hey, Peter, our nets are breaking. And Peter's like, you've got to be kidding me. They begin to pull up these nets. Peter looks over at James and John on the shore. Guys, come on. I, come on. What, what are you saying? Come on. And so they get in their boat, and they're coming out as well. And as they begin to, to uh, come to where Peter is, they help him, verse 6, verse 7 says. They came, and b- they fill both boats and they be not only are the nets breaking because there are so many fish not only are they piling all these fish into the boat the boats begin to sink with the weight of their catch and i can just picture peter in this boat his attention's on the net as he tries to bring these nets up it's it's stressful because they're breaking now they get the second boat they finally get the fish in the boat and now their boats start to sink and he looks at jesus And he realizes, maybe this guy knows some things I don't. Jesus' knowledge of what I I thought was my area, Jesus' knowledge is far superior to my own. And the information that I was trying to give him in order to help him give me an informed instruction was useless. And I love how Peter responds. He sees the fish he sees the, wa- the boats sinking. He sees Jesus, and he falls down at Jesus' knees. He says, you better get out of here. You don't want to associate with me. Depart from me, he says, for I am a sinner. He recognizes that Jesus is someone who is completely different from And as he comes to the recognition of Jesus' knowledge, his authority, his power, he responds by recognizing his unworthiness to be around Jesus. Now, of course, the right response when we recognize that today is not to say, depart from me, Jesus, but rather to forgive me, Jesus, and draw closer to him. But I think that Peter has the right idea, at least here, in recognizing Jesus' otherness. The story goes on right? It says Simon sees this, he falls down at Jesus' knees, and then the attention draws to the other people that are around him as well. I think it's Peter and Jesus and a couple hired guys in one boat, then James and John are in the other boat. It says all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. No kidding. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, the partners of Simon, 
And Jesus said to Simon these comforting words. This is this, and it's partly prediction, partly comfort, partly command. It says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Simon. From now on, you will be catching men. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Think about what that means. Peter and James and John are these are in this business relationship, and James and John's father, Zebedee, I believe, was involved in this as well, based upon what we read from Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1 that I believe describes the, the same events in kind of a truncated form. They were these business partners. They had experienced this setback the night before. Now, this morning, they have the biggest catch literally, of their career. They've landed their biggest client, so to speak. And as they come to shore, these nets that they've been so careful to clean because they didn't want them to rot, they leave that behind. They leave the fish behind. They leave the boat behind. Mark tells us they leave Zebedee behind, too. Dad, leave Zebedee in the boat. Because Jesus had commanded them to follow him. That moment in time when Jesus gives them an instruction, Peter has realized that Jesus' knowledge of his life is far greater than his own, and so he obeys Jesus. And in a little bit, we're going to talk more about Jesus' relationship with Peter and his knowledge of Peter. But what I want to do right now is talk about three applications from this story that help us move from just a theoretical understanding that God knows all things to help us think through what does it mean that God knows all things and that we should follow Christ in all things? How does this story help us know that God knowing all things helps us follow Jesus in all things? Here's the first application. First application is this. Know God's will. We're talking about Deuteronomy 29, 29 in just a moment. It says that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. God knows all things. The secret things belong to the Lord. Now, one time I was talking to, to Dr. Jim Osvall from Bethany Baptist Church. You may know Dr. Osvall. He's a pretty sharp cookie. He sent me this paper that he had written on infinity. He does things like that, writes papers on infinity. Now, some of them went right over my head. But parts of it were very interesting for me to contemplate and think about. He was talking about how big infinity is, and apparently it's very, very large, and how God existed from eternity past. What that means, catch this, what it means that since God has existed from eternity past, it means that he had an infinite amount of time to consider the created realm. You know what that means? That means that every moment of your life, God has had an infinite amount of time to ponder and consider and plan and know. You think God knows a lot of things? You bet he does. This moment that we're in right this second, 
God has had an infinite amount of time to know in infinite amount of detail. That blows my mind. Now, if God knows everything in infinite detail, and he decides to tell you some things, those are probably some pretty important things to know, right? (laughs) If God is going to choose to reveal certain things to you, and God knows everything, then clearly the things that he chooses to reveal to you are very important truths to know. Now, uh, I've talked before about postmodernism, and I've been very generally critical of postmodernism. Postmodernism is kind of the the cultural milieu that, that we exist in. Most of the people around us in our culture are postmodernists, and postmodernists is like a bunch of uh, high schoolers trying to decide where to go out to eat. No one knows anything. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? I don't know. No one knows anything in postmodernism. Postmodernists are doubt our ability to, to truly know things. Now, the bad part of postmodernism we've talked about a lot. The good thing about postmodernism, it is hopefully given us a great sense of of humility. Our ability to truly know things to their fullest depth doesn't exist. And we have a God who has decided to reveal certain things to us, a God who knows everything. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to know the things that he's told us to do. Here in verses 1 through 3, Peter is listening to Jesus teach. He understands the authority, at least theoretically, that Jesus has. And we know that that Peter has spent other times around Jesus. Simon Peter begins to know God's will. If you and I are going to take this idea that God knows all things and that should cause us to follow Christ in all things, we need to know the things that God has told us to do. Know God's will. Know what God desires us to do. There's a kind of a character in one of Plato's uh, plays called Cratylus. And Cratylus is like the world's first postmodernist. Cratylus is this character who believes that we can't truly know anything. And so, for example, he'll say, I don't fully understand this stool, therefore I can't even give it a name. Therefore, when I want to talk about it, I'm just going to point to it. Points to things first postmodernist doubts our ability to know things we have a god though that knows it all and because he knows it all and because he loves us he's chosen to reveal certain truths to us therefore we need to know those things that he has called us to know that's the first application here here's the second application here's the second application We need to trust Christ's directions. We need to have an understanding that the things that Christ has instructed us are based upon the fact that God knows all things, therefore we can trust him in all things. If you look at your handout in your bulletin, you see that there's kind of three points on the front side. Uh, There's a lot more on the back. Today, if you're talking with people that go to another church, you can ask them, how many, how many points did your sermon have? Say two, three, four. You can say, huh, one of our, one of our points had 20 subpoints. Okay. What I want to do is I want to just talk to you a little bit about the things that God knows. 
want to talk to you about the things that God knows perfectly that you and I don't know perfectly. And I'm going to spend some time on this, looking at, at some of these and the scripture verses that go with them, because what I hope it is, is I hope it's like this, this nail that's, that, that's driven in slowly through the pounding of a hammer. You know, my, my grandfather, whenever I do a project with him, he could take a nail and a hammer, bam, bam, it's in there. Me, it kind of took some soft tapping quite, quite a while to get that nail fully driven in. I want to take some time and talk about the different aspects of God's knowledge, the things that God knows that help us follow Christ more fully. Some of these overlap. And what I did simply, as I sat down, I just kind of listed some things, some Bible verses that I knew, and some things that God knows that are just kind of, kind of obvious. There are many more things if we're going to do an in-depth treatment of this that we could do. And hopefully this will help us, though, get this understanding that God knows all things. Look, look at the first thing. God knows deep secret truths. We already talked about Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Secondly, God knows when someone is, is telling the truth. Joshua 22 and 2 Corinthians 11, in both of those verses, the, the writers uh, and the, the people in the story in Joshua 22 appeal to the God's knowledge. Say, look, God knows that I'm telling the truth in this circumstance. It would be incredibly useful for me as a parent to know exactly when someone is telling me the truth. There's a researcher that's determined that children begin uh, deceiving at age three. I think my children are very gifted. It would be incredibly useful for me as a parent to have complete knowledge of when someone was telling me the truth and, and when they were being deceptive. God knows that perfectly, though. In fact, God not only knows when someone is intentionally deceiving, God knows when someone is unintentionally deceiving. And sometimes in a situation, you're talking to people, they have two different perspectives of the situation, and they're, they're both, they both think they're telling the truth, but they're telling you opposite things. God knows the truth perfectly. Number three, third thing here, God knows where we are. Psalm 139.2 says, you know when I sit down and, and when I rise up. God knows at every moment of the day, even when we don't know where we are, God knows where we are. Think about the situation this past week with those uh, 29 men who perished in that mining accident. It's the worst mining accident in, in decades in the United States. People didn't know where the, the bodies of those men who had died, four of them at least, were for, for several days. God knew exactly at every moment of their lives and after where those men had been. God knows, uh, kind of the fourth thing I've listed here, God knows exactly what we're thinking. Psalm 139, 2 says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Number five, God knows what we're doing. And Psalm 139, verse 3 says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Number six, God knows what we're about to say. Uh, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. Man, that would be a useful thing for me to know just about myself. Sometimes I, I say something, I'm like, wow, I didn't know that was going to come out. God knows what we're going to say even before we say it. God knows, verse number seven, uh, how to rescue the godly from temptation. Second Peter 2 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue, rescue the godly from trials. Number eight, God knows how to punish the wicked. Second Peter 2 9 says, you know how to keep, it continues that idea, you know how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Number nine, God knows our DNA makeup and, and everything else that makes us who we are. 
Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. I was talking with a, a woman this week, and her, her child had had some, some health difficulties much of her life, and they weren't quite sure what was going on. And, and at nine years old, they, they found that this, nine or ten years old, they found that this girl had a, a chromosomal uh, a defect, what we, we would consider a defect. And God knew that already. God knew that when he had formed her in her mother's womb. There's a debate between nature versus nurture, what makes us who we are. God understands how all those things fit together. God knows you and I perfectly in ways that, that we don't even know ourselves. God knows the undetected sin that lies in our hearts. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I've done are not hidden from you. Eleven, God knows who his sheep are. We see in John 10, 26 and 27 that he says, I know my sheep, those whom God has entrusted to me. Number 12, God knows how much we love him. We'll come back to this in a moment. 13, God knows how shallow our deepest thoughts are. 1 Corinthians 3, 20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. God knows how long we will live. Psalm 139, 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Now, if you and I were going to plan out our lives, and what we were going to do at what moment of the day and in what month of our lives, knowing how long we were going to live would be a very useful bit of information. None of us have that. God does. God knows. God knows the tiniest details in our lives, such as how many hairs we have on our heads and when the sparrows fall. God knows, number 16, what the, the future holds. Isaiah 41, 23 says uh, an aspect of God's deity is that he knows what's to come hereafter. 17, God knows how the universe was created, how vast it is, what holds it together. All these things my hand has made, says God, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. God knows, 18 thing I've listed here, God knows how many tears we've shed. I have, I've even forgotten some of the things that have gone wrong in my life. God remembers them all, and he keeps a record of my tossings. He puts my tears in a bottle, the psalmist says in Psalm 56, 8. God knows when Christ will return, Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of God, but the Father only. Number 20, God knows how to give good gifts. If then you who are evil, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you get the point? God knows everything and everything that i just listed you don't know perfectly and everything that i just listed would be a crucial bit of information to have in order to make wise decisions about how you're going to live it'd be useful to know when someone's telling the truth in order to know how to respond to them. But you know what? You can't know that. It'd be useful when you're in an argument with someone to understand their heart attitude. But you know what? You don't even know your heart attitude at that moment. 
it'd be useful to know these things as you make decisions. You don't know them. God knows them perfectly. He knows them in infinite detail. And because God knows all those things, you and I can trust Christ's directions. We can believe that the things that Christ is telling us to do, though they don't make sense from our perspective, make sense to a sovereign God who knows all things. Isn't that an amazing truth? Third application that helps us as we think about how God, knowing all things, helps us to follow Christ in all things. Last application here, follow Christ's lead. Follow Christ's lead. As the story concludes with Peter and Jesus and James and John and the sons of Zebedee, there comes a point where they have to make a decision. They have two paths before them, and it becomes increasingly difficult to straddle both paths. They must make a decision about which path they'll follow. They can't continue to be fishermen and follow Christ's lead. And at this moment of their careers, when they've just landed the biggest catch of their lives, they walk away from it. Think about the progression of the story here. It begins with Jesus teaching and Peter listening passively. Then Jesus gives him a little instruction. Follow me in this area. Peter does so, understands Jesus' knowledge. Then at the end of the story, Jesus gives a big instruction. Leave it all behind and follow me. And Peter and James and John do so. The last, one of the last things I want us to look at here is a little bit of, of Peter and Jesus' relationship. And what I want to do is I want us to look at the beginning of the book of John and the end of the book of John and, and see how God knowing all things helps Peter follow Christ in all things. Look at, first of all, at John chapter 1. Just the next book over from Luke. We see Jesus and Peter's first interaction here in the book of John. John chapter 1, remember Jesus has encountered Simon's brother Andrew. He encounters Andrew, first of all, through the ministry of John the Baptist. Andrew's following John the Baptist. John the Baptist looks to see Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew encounters Jesus. As he encounters Jesus, he goes and he gets Simon Peter. This time to Simon. And brings Simon to Jesus. And then look at Jesus and Simon's first interaction. This is this is amazing. It says, verse 42, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, that is, rock. Jesus, simply by looking at Simon, understands who Simon will be, and gives this prophecy, you're going to be called Petros, the rock. And Jesus knows not only who Simon will be, he knows how Simon will get there. But he doesn't begin 
by telling him the difficult path ahead of him. Jesus in Simon Peter's life gradually reveals more and more of what it means to follow him. And Simon, if he had known everything at the beginning that he knew at the end, may not have followed Jesus in obedience. God reveals things that Peter needs to know as Peter follows him in obedience. And it culminates, it culminates at the end, at least in far as Jesus and Peter's earthly interaction. And the end of John, turn to the end of John with me, the last chapter. We see Jesus and Peter's last interaction together on earth in John 21. They've gone through all this, this time together. Verse 15, remember Simon Peter has betrayed Jesus. It's the darkest moment of his life. Verse 15, they finished breakfast and Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to, them the third said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, listen to what he confesses, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and, and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John tells us this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. If he had begun on that day in the boat and said to Peter, Peter, follow me to martyrdom. Peter would be like, huh? Thanks, but no thanks, crazy preacher guy. But Jesus knows everything. And he knew the path upon which Peter needed to walk in order to be prepared to do the things that God had in store to him, in store for him, to, for him to live his life for its ultimate purpose, which was to glorify God. And as we come to the end of Jesus' interaction with Peter here on earth, we come to John 21, and Peter declares, Jesus, you know everything. And Jesus says, that's right I do. Now follow me to death. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to take this abstract idea, oh, God knows everything, God knows where my car keys are, God knows what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Are you willing to take God's omniscience and apply it practically? God knows everything, therefore I must follow Jesus in all things. And so as I encounter this difficult circumstance and, and God's word tells me one thing and my heart tells me another, are you willing to say, God knows all things, therefore I can follow Christ in all things? Are you willing to say, if God knows all things, I should probably know the things that he's chosen to reveal to me. I should probably trust Christ's direction and I must in all things choose to follow 
the Lord with joy. And notice as Peter follows Jesus even to martyrdom. It's not the walk of a reluctant martyr. But the joy of one who's following a Savior whom he knows loves him above all. Anyone else who would love him in his life is willing to follow Christ in perfect and total obedience, knowing that God knows all things, therefore to follow Christ in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that does reveal to us the things that you know, that we have no hope of understanding on our own, and give us trust in you to obey you fully. We pray this by your grace, in your son Jesus' name, amen.